Well, I praise God for people who understand and love and do music. To me, it's, I enjoy it, but, you know, I I don't understand how it works. I can't make it happen. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I was always more of a uh, a sports kind of guy, and I I wasn't an outstanding athlete or anything like that, but I was an an athlete. And, and, you know, when you do sports, you kind of have to figure out the fundamentals of how to do something. I remember... I played baseball, and all the time the coach was talking about fundamentals, 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 how to field a ground ball, things like that. Like, you got to work on that stuff. That's, that's key stuff, right, the fundamentals. Because if you don't have the fundamentals down, you're going to have problems later on, right? If, if, you're, if you're into weightlifting and you're, you're lifting a lot of weight, if you don't get the fundamentals down, when you do some crazy heavy lift over your head, um, you're going to blow a shoulder or, you know, hurt yourself some other way. you got to have the fundamentals down, right? It's, uh, it's important stuff. And so this morning we're going to be reading about some fundamentals of the Christian life. And Peter talks about, so, so open up to uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, if you would, please. And we're going we're gonna to read a little bit from there and talk about some fundamentals for the Christian life that Peter talks about. Basics. There are four of them. So 1 Peter chapter 1. And uh, it's a quarter after already, so I'm going to have to go a little fast, so buckle up. Um, I'll try not to lose you, uh, but I want to honor your time also. First Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 13, and I'm going to read all the way through the end of the chapter. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God." Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth from a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Let's pray. Lord, you are holy. And we thank you that we can talk to you, that we can come into your presence. Thank you that you've established the body of Christ, the church on earth. Thank you that we can gather together this morning around your word that we can learn from you what you would have us to know, what you'd have us to learn and take away, what you would have us to do, what you'd have us to know about ourselves and about you. We ask for your blessing. We ask for your work in our hearts this morning. Lord, we take this 
this time to uh, offer you our hearts and say that uh, we don't demand dominion in our own hearts, but we offer it freely to you. Do your work in our midst this morning, we pray, Lord. We want to uh, see what you're going to do. We want to hear from you. We want you to work in our midst in power. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. The first word in my translation is therefore. And so the question is always a good one to ask when you start reading with the word therefore. What's the therefore therefore, right? Or wherefore the wherefore? What does it mean? Well, in this case, it points back up to the preceding couple of paragraphs. And if you look back up there in the preceding couple of paragraphs in 1 Peter chapter 1, you'll see that Peter has been talking about this amazing salvation that's been given to us. This incredible work that was promised beforehand through the prophets, right? That God was going to do this work. And here it is, this salvation, this amazing salvation that's so wonderful that the angels long to look into it. They want to know more about it. It's this amazing salvation. He says, this salvation is yours. Therefore, he's going to draw some conclusions. He's going to make some points based upon that fact. Okay, So he wants to talk about what do you do? You have this salvation. You're rejoicing. What do you do with it? How do you live the Christian life? What are some basics? Where do we get started? I think back to when I first became a believer. Wasn't in a church. Wasn't I've, I've shared my testimony from here before. It was on a baseball field. And I trusted Christ. I didn't even know to call it that. I had no idea what to do. I didn't even know to go to church. I just knew about the very basics of the gospel, about my sin and my relationship with God and about trusting Christ. That's all I knew. I didn't know that there was a next step. And I certainly didn't know what it was. And so Peter, writing to his audience, is going to tell us what some basic steps are. What are the fundamentals? What are the things that we need to practice and get down some basics in our Christian walk? And uh, so the first one there that he talks about, the first fundamental element of the Christian life, is this hope. A hope to fix. We have a hope to fix. He says that in verse 13. He says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The first thing he mentions there is a mind fit for duty. You have to have a mind fit for duty. He says there are two things there. Preparing your mind for action is one of them. And be sober-minded. What does it mean to prepare your mind for action? The literal Greek there is gird up the loins of your mind. And I'm glad they changed that to prepare your mind for action because I didn't know a whole lot about girding up the loins of your mind. But if, if, if you think about it, in their culture, people wore robes, right? Even the men ran around in robes. Everybody was in a robe. And if you all of a sudden needed to go, you know, do some work, if you needed to pour concrete in the back or you needed to take off running or you needed to do whatever, you've got this, you know, robes down your ankles. You can't really run. And so what they would do is they would reach down and grab the trail of their robe and pull it up and tuck it in their belt like that. And so what they're doing is they're turning their robes into running shorts, okay? So because it pulls them up tight and now your legs are bare and you can, you can run, you can fight, you can work and do whatever you need to do. And that's girding up your loins, okay? So you're grabbing your robe, turning your robe into running shorts. And so he says that's what you need to do with your mind. 
you need to be prepared. Prepare yourself for action. If you contrast the two sides, if you're standing there with your, with your robes down to your ankles and you've got to do some running, it's not going to go well, right? It's, it's going to end badly for you. You're going to end up on your face probably, or at least, at the very worst, you're not going to be able to go very fast. So you're, you're not prepared for action. You're not ready to go, are you? But when you gird up your loins, when you grab your robe and fold it up like that, then you're ready for some action. So the image here, when he says preparing your minds for action or girding up the loins of your mind, he's saying be mentally prepared. Be alert. Be ready. Be ready for action. Be observant. Don't be falling asleep in your mind. You've got to be ready for action. You've got to gird up the loins of your mind. The second thing he says here is being sober-minded. Sober-minded. That's not, a, that's not a term we use a whole bunch but um, it's interesting, in the, in the New Testament, usually when we read the word sober, it's connected with sound judgment and alertness. And I, I think that kind of makes sense, right? If, if we look at uh, a person who drinks too much alcohol, they're no longer sober, they're drunk, right? And so what's happened is their mind is no longer nearly as alert. And they don't make uh, decisions it, with the same um, skill that they would make otherwise. They have a different priority structure. Things that might be really important when they're sober, all of a sudden they get drunk and that becomes less important, like driving safely or, or whatever else, right? It messes with their judgment system. It messes with their decision-making process because they're drunk. Their mind kind of goes, goes to sleep in a sense. It's not nearly as alert. It's not as active, right? You, you don't want to have uh, a soldier on the front line who's you know, looking for the enemy. You don't want that guy to be drunk. Because he's supposed to be alert. He's supposed to be paying attention. He's, he's supposed to be knowing what's going on. And so he uses this imagery about being sober-minded, about having a mind that is ready, that, that, that is, is uh, using sound judgment. It's alert. It's paying attention. It's making good decisions. So I was thinking about what it means to be sober-minded, and I think a, a definition is it's being free from those things that would impair our value system or interfere with our decision-making abilities. And alcohol isn't the only thing that can destroy the sobriety of our minds, is it? There are all kinds of things that, that, can, that can get in there and mess with our decision-making, mess with our thinking patterns. Uh, a simple one is envy. If you envy something, if you really are angry at this other person because they have something that you want and you don't have it and you would rather they just they didn't have it at all. You'd rather have it. You'd rather they didn't have it. That envy, that kind of thing can get into your heart and it messes with your thinking and you start looking around you thinking, ah, I wish I had that and I wish they didn't have that and I, I can't believe they have... And that envy gets right into their thinking and it, and it spoils it, it ruins it, it changes it. It pollutes it. Another one is bitterness. Bitterness can do that. If you're bitter about the way your life's turned out or the way something's happened and you have that sort of bitterness, that gets in and spoils your thinking too. Because you may be praying for someone, and all of a sudden, you slip into this bitter patter, pattern in, in, in your thinking, and you're you're not you're not praying for the best for them anymore. You're you're kind of you're kind of spoiled. And you kind of you know in your in your heart of hearts, you kind of wish that you know something bad would happen. Um, bitterness can do that. Lustful thoughts and pornography will exactly do that. It will come in and spoil instantly any kind of mental sobriety you've got. It takes your thinking away from what you should be thinking about. And it's going to put it onto that pattern. 
being sober-minded is what he's talking about. So that's our, that's our first point here. In order to fix your hope properly, we first have to have a mind fit for duty. It has to be alert and ready for action. And the object of that hope is grace yet to come. It's grace that's going to come. If you ask people about the grace of God, probably if they're a Christian or if they've been to church, they're, they're going to talk about the grace of God that happened, right? What God did in their lives. March 28, 1992, that was when God showed, you know, poured out his grace in my life. They're thinking about something that happened in the past, right? And he's saying, we're not talking about that grace that happened yesterday. Yes, that happened. And yes, that's legitimate. And yes, we need to rejoice in that. But there's more than that. There's more to it than that. He's talking about a grace that's yet to come, something that's going to be future. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul talks about this in a couple of different places. 1 Corinthians 13, he says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we'll see face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. That's grace to come. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? That's the grace to come. And Romans chapter 7, he talks about it. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he talks later in chapter 8. He says, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. There's a grace to come. And he wants us to fix our grace that direction. He wants us to look that direction, not be fixated on the grace that happened in the past. It was real. It was powerful. It was important. We need to talk about it. But our hope is to be fixed on the one that's to come, that's in the future. Peter reminds us that God has not expended all of his grace towards us. There's more to come. He wants us to have a hope fixed on grace. A hope fixed on grace. The first two points uh, about, about what we're to do with our mind, being, being ready for action, those, those weren't the main point. His main verb here, the most important thing that he says is hope. Fix your hope. Set your hope. The verb is hope. Hope. Now, we know that the biblical idea of hope is different, right, than, than our idea of hope now. If you talk about your kids, what do you want for Christmas? Oh, I hope I get a bicycle. Pie in the sky, don't know if it's going to happen, have no idea, but I hope so. I really wish, I really wish. That's not the biblical idea at all. The biblical idea of hope is a, a confident, firm expectation. This is going to happen, and that's my hope. It's not a wish. It's a confident expectation. The author of Hebrews calls hope a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. I like that. A sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Not not a, a little wish on the side that kind of makes you feel better. It's sure and steadfast, and it's an anchor for your soul. When Paul talks about the armor of God, we're familiar with uh, Ephesians chapter 6, he talks about the armor of God, but he also talks about it in 1 Thessalonians 5. And when he talks about the armor of God in 1 Thessalonians 5, probably the most important piece is the helmet. That's the, that's the thing that I want to cover the most. And you, you know what, he, what the helmet is in 1 Thessalonians 5? 
It's the hope of salvation. Hope is important. Hope is central. We need to fix our gaze and our hope on this future grace that's to come. Let's don't always just be looking back at grace that happened in our lives in the past, things that God did in the past. Let's look to the future and look at the grace he's going to pour out when we're redeemed in the end, when we're united finally with Christ, when we actually get to see him face to face, when our bodies are redeemed. Let's look to that grace, grace that's in the future. So the first fundamental element of the Christian life is that we are to fix our hope firmly on the grace that's to come when we are finally and completely united with Christ. The second element is that we are to have a holy passion. Now, in your outlines, it says holy command. Both are true, and Rochelle did not make a mistake. I changed my mind (laughs) after it went to press. So, it says there a holy command. Now, it is a command. Be holy. That's an imperative. That's a command. But I want you to scratch out command and write passion, and we'll, I'll tell you why in a second. But I think it's, it's important for us to do. Let's look at verses 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to, your former, to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, what's a passion? What are passions? Well, the the biblical definition of passion is a strong desire. And it doesn't always mean a bad thing. It can be positive, it can be neutral, or it can be negative. Here it's it's pretty negative. Um, And I want to read a couple of other New Testament passages. First of all, write this one down. Write down Romans 1, 28 through 32. He he talks about that. For the sake of time, you you can read that on your own. I won't do that now. So Romans 1, 28 through 32. But where he does talk about it is Galatians 5, 19 through 24. This, this gets pretty hairy. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife. I mean, it's bad stuff, right? Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So, we're not to be conformed to those, but we're to be like obedient children. What are obedient children like? I hope you know because I hope you have obedient children or you are obedient children. But I think about what is, what is obedience? When you're teaching your child obedience, I mean, we, we love our children and, and they're wonderful and all that kind of stuff, but they have these, these desires, right? You take a three-year-old child, they have desires, they have three-year-old desires, things that they want, things that they demand, and ideas of how they're going to get those things. Sometimes it involves laying on the ground and banging fists or whatever. Different kids come up with different plans, right? But the, those, those are the kinds of things that they try. Because they have these passions... And they haven't yet learned that they can't just give in to all of those. They haven't yet learned that it's, it's disadvantageous to, to go down some of these paths, right? Because there's going to be some sort of, you know, bad news down the road. So as a child learns that, you know, I really, I really want to steal that chocolate cookie, chocolate chip cookie. Uh, that's their passion. They really want that. But an obedient child says, you know what? That's going to end poorly for me. 
and it's, it's not going to make my parents very happy. It's going to, there's going to be a stain or a problem in my fellowship with my parents. Of course, they don't think in terms of fellowship. But that's, that's what they're thinking. I really like it when my relationship with daddy is, is great and sweet and open and fun. I really don't like it when I'm being disciplined. So an obedient child leaves that chocolate chip cookie and does the obedient thing, right? Because they know there are going to be negative consequences and they know they want to please their parents. They want to be in that sort of relationship or fellowship with their parents. So that's, that's uh, something that he's, that he's talking about here, about being obedient children. That's what we're to be like. We're to set aside those old passions. Learn. I mean, learn, learn from your kids. Look, look at your kids and, and, and think about some things where they really used to have a problem with this. They would throw fits about this. This was important. This was, this was central to, to what they wanted in life. And it was a disobedient thing. It was, a, it was a, you know, something they shouldn't have. And as time goes on, they learn, you know what? I can't always do that because I get in trouble and because I really want to be in this right relationship with my parents. So I'm not going to do that. And then all of a sudden you see that they've matured and things have changed. They've learned some new things. So Peter tells us to put off those old passions and lusts. We're to abstain from them. Don't submit to them or let them reign in your life. Don't be conformed to them any longer. Instead, we are to follow Christ's holy example. Now, Christ is more than an example, but he is certainly an example, right? The Bible says in, in, in Colossians chapter 1 says that, that Jesus is the visible representation of the invisible, or he's the visible representation of the invisible God. He's the image of the unseen God. It's like taking a picture of, of what's visible and, or what's invisible and showing it to you. That's kind of what Jesus is like. He lived out on this earth holiness. A holy life. Think about, think about Jesus' lifestyle. Think about the things that he faced. I mean, my, my life has been pretty easy compared to Jesus. Jesus had the smartest people in the country who were the most educated trying to trip him up on some theological point. Woody doesn't do that to me. I don't have to deal with that daily. And you probably don't have to deal with that daily. But they were trying to trip him up. They really wanted to, to see him mess up, make some mistakes so they could jump on him and say, aha! You had people, well, you had Satan himself Tempting him, right? Came to him and tempted Jesus. That's what he was faced with. Well, that's, that's, that's a pretty big deal. Well, how did he respond to that? What happened? What did he respond with? Well, he responded in obedience to the Father. And we learned some things about what it means to be holy and how to overcome temptation from his life. At every turn, at every hardship, at every difficulty, at every... Now, th- think about this one. Think about if people came up to you and said... Um, you know, we've been talking about it, and we would really like you to be king. We're just going to take you, and we're going to make you king. Right? You're, you're, you're going to be the king. It's all, it's all set up. We're going to do this. We, you know, we want to proclaim you as king. You're king. You're king. Think about that. Now, that's a temptation. To me, that would be a temptation. Get to be king. Sweet. And they're going to do the work for me? <laughs> that's great. And Jesus said, no, I didn't come to be that kind of king. So he, even in that kind of temptation, not even, not even the negative, just the negative hard ones, but the, you know, the really positive ones, Jesus will do this for you. No, that's not what God sent me here for. Jesus walked in holiness. He's the representation on earth among us of what it means to be holy. He is our example. He's the perfect example of holiness. We are to be holy as God is holy. And this is why I had you scratch out command and put passion. Because of this point. We're to, we're to put off, we're to put away those old passions. We're not to submit to them. We're not to be conformed to those old passions, right? 
And I think the idea is left open that we're to move towards a new passion. And that new passion is God himself and for his holiness. As we get to know God more and more, as we get to know Jesus more and more, we're confronted with our own darkness that's inside of us. If we're not confronted with that darkness, then we're not getting to know the God and the Jesus of the Bible. Period. As we learn about him and as we get to know him better, we're confronted with that. And we're amazed by his holiness. We're amazed by his life, by what he's like. And the more we get to know him, the more passionate we become about his life and about our life conforming to his, becoming like his. We are to be holy as God is holy. I'm moving along for the sake of time. I'd I'd love to spend some more time on this. But the second fundamental element of the Christian life is that we are to develop a passion for the holiness of our Savior. Point number three is we also have an honor to show. Verses 17 through 21. If you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. We have an honor to show, a fear, a reverence, in, in, in defining the word fear, I think that's not always easy for us to understand. But imagine that, you're, that you go to Niagara Falls, you walk up to the edge, and you know there's a rail here, but you're standing on the edge, and, and you're watching this, you know, zillions of, you know, it's, you know, huge, powerful nature at work, right? And you're standing right there. That sense that you feel, where your heart races just a little bit, and you're thinking, you know, I'm safe, I've got the rail here, People are around me, you know, they're not, they're not dying. I'm probably not going to die. But if I fell in there, it'd be all over. You would have that sort of fear. This is incredible and enjoyable, but a little bit scary. Because if I make the wrong step, the power is there for my, my destruction, right? It's not going to happen. I mean, I've got this bar and everything like that, but it's still there. That's a little bit what reverence is like. It's not fear as in scared running away. But it's also not flippancy. You're serious that this danger is here. This Niagara Falls is a powerful force of nature. The God of heaven is infinitely more powerful. And we're in his presence? That's that's not something we do flippantly. We don't do that lightly. We have an honor to show. One, because our father is a judge... Our father is a judge. I remember, I I didn't pay much attention to it, but something happened. There was a federal judge in Vegas or something, or the son of a federal judge got into all kinds of drug problems and all kinds of things went on. And uh, this just came up because I was thinking, if my dad was a judge, you know, some people would would use that for license, that, hey, I I can get out of trouble. But I would think, particularly if your father is an impartial judge, you would toe the line. I I think that would be the reasonable response. Your father is a judge. See, there, there, there's an issue in our culture where we, we want to have God as our buddy. We want to have Jesus as our buddy. And yes, Jesus calls himself our friend. But if it devolves 
into, hey, Jesus, my buddy, hey, let's go do, do what I want to do in here, you know, and we're, we're budding, we're, we're, we're palling around and whatever. We, we're entering dangerous waters. Because he's also the God of the universe. And he's an impartial judge. Now, you should be able just to say judge. But an impartial judge is one that cannot be bribed. He's, he, he's, he's going to judge rightly. Now, we're going to talk about what it means to be judged rightly at the, here in the, in the last point. But I would think that would inspire a little bit of reverence in us when we're talking to God, when we're aware that he sent his Holy Spirit to live in me, when we're aware that where two or three are gathered together, there, there he is in our midst, when we're aware of those things, I think it would inspire a little bit of reverence. Our Father is a judge. He's holy and impartial. Our lives should be characterized by a holy reverence for him. The second reason we have this honor to show is because of the price that was paid, the ransom price. He didn't just stack up a whole bunch of gold or money or investments or something else. He gave the blood of his spotless son to ransom us. It's impossible to take that lightly. Just think for a minute. It's impossible to take that lightly. He gave the blood of his son. That was the price that he paid. That's a serious price. Not only the ransom price, but the ransom plan. Before the foundations of the, of the world, this was God's plan. He's been working this direction since then to make this all happen. It's not a new idea. It's not plan C. It's what he intended. It's his plan. And I think that would cause us to think, you know what? God has some investment in what's going on. Not just financial investment. He has invested the course of all of nature, of all of creation towards this direction. I would think there would be a little bit of reverence, a little bit of fear, right? A little bit of honor that we would want to show. So our father is a judge and he paid an enormous ransom price in this plan that he came up with since before creation. So that's the third fundamental element of the Christian life. We are to conduct ourselves with fear or reverence because our father is the almighty and impartial judge who paid an impossibly high price as part of his eternal plan to redeem us. Fourthly, we are to have a heart to love Verses 22 through 25. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. Grass withers and the flower falls, and the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Love. <laughs> Fundamentals. There are only, only four of them. And we shouldn't be surprised that love is a giant one. And for the sake of time, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to motor through this pretty quickly. But we're to have love for one another. He's made that possible because he has purified our soul. Point B. Point C. He's given us a supernatural rebirth. Those two things are required in order for us to love the way God wants us to love. This is that, that famous Greek word agape. 
That's, it's, a, it's a divine kind of love that's sacrificial, that's other-centered. It's a, it's a giving kind of love that we in our fallen nature are not capable of doing because we are always self-interested. And so we wouldn't even be able to obey this command if it weren't for God's work in purifying our souls and in giving us this supernatural rebirth called regeneration. And so one of the results of these things is that we are finally enabled to love others the way God wants us to. And finally, he did that with an indestructible instrument, the word of God. Not just the word of God as in the Bible. It's a, it's a different word. He's talking about the gospel, the gospel, the good news that was preached to you. That's what he's talking about. And that's how we were purified. That's how we were reborn. Paul says the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes the preaching of the good news of salvation in Christ is the instrument God uses to give us new spiritual life. The only hope, the only hope that we have to be forgiven of this enormous sin debt that we have, unless lest we think for a minute we don't have that sin debt, Jesus says, he tells us where the bar is. He says, all right, here's the standard. You ready for it? Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That's the standard. That's the standard he gives. Well, it gets worse because he also says, God says, I will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. All right, so I missed the bar totally and and he won't leave me unpunished. So left to my own, I am toast. I am toast. I am guilty. The only hope that I have is this plan that God came up with before the foundation of the world and he enacted when he sent his son Jesus to die for us, to pay the penalty for our sins. It's clear that we have those sins. That's my only hope. And so this this morning, I want to leave that with you, that if maybe you've heard that before, I don't know, maybe you haven't, but if if God is opening your heart to understand that for the first time ever, that the bar is too high, I can't meet it. And the penalty is judgment, and I don't want that. And there's no way out except the person of Christ. If that's the first time you're understanding that, if God is opening your heart to hear that, I I, I would like to talk to you afterwards. Come up and talk to me. We'll talk about what this means, and I'll I'll flesh out a little bit more what the gospel's talking about here. But that is the indestructible instrument that he God used to bring us into the kingdom of God for those of us who are in it. Let's pray. Lord, these fundamentals are um, simple but not easy. It's certainly helpful that uh, Peter would lay them out for us like this, that you would think to let us know uh, what you expect of us in such a clear way. Lord, I pray that we would put our hope in you. I pray that we would be holy, that we would be consumed with this passion for holiness because God is holy. I pray that we would live our lives, that we would walk in reverence, in fear of the Lord, not flippantly, but that we would remember that that you are with us, that you are a holy and impartial judge who paid this enormous price and has been working on this plan from before the foundations of the earth. 
And I pray that we would love one another as we hear so often. Lord, I pray this morning that uh, for, for anyone who maybe has never heard this before or this is the first time they're understanding that there is only one hope. There is only one possible way for them to have this giant debt of sin forgiven, to be set free and redeemed from sin in their lives. And that, that way is Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would that you would save them today. I pray that they would uh, do business with you, that, that you would give uh, me or others opportunity to, to talk to them and fill in uh, the details that, that I've had to skip over today. But Lord, I pray that uh, um, folks would come to know you, that you would draw people to yourself because of your word proclaimed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.